So last week we looked at chapter 13, 1 through 14, 27 of the book of Isaiah. That was the first oracle. I'm trying to make sure I say this correctly and clearly. That was the first oracle of five oracles in the first series of three series of five oracles each. So if that was a little confusing, just bear with, bear with me. We'll keep, I'll continue to explain that as we keep going. But like I mentioned last week, we have entered what is unfortunately normally thought of as the doldrums of Isaiah, which is the oracles and the woes in really this giant chunk in the middle of Isaiah. And my goal last week, this week, and the next two weeks as we work through this book is to hopefully help us see why Isaiah takes so much time to work through all of these oracles and woes and why he gives what, at the end of the day, seems like a message that sounds the same again and again and again. And in fact, you will notice that my applications, I will try to make them unique each week, but effectively, I, at the end of the day, kind of feel like Isaiah saying the same thing again and again and again. And that is actually because what we see in chapters 13 all the way through 35, if you look at the timestamps, we're given a couple as we go, what these are, these, all these chapters are effectively a sampling of what Isaiah was saying again and again and again to the people of Judah and by extension to all God's people. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God and what he has told you, what he's telling me to tell you, or are you going to keep trusting in, if you look at the rest of the book of Isaiah, literally anything else? Like the people have turned to effectively everything, and usually it's to some sort of world power, some sort of plan that seems wise in their own eyes. Are you going to trust your own eyes, or are you going to trust what God has shown you? That sounds like quite a few Proverbs and other verses that are given many times throughout the Bible. There's, there's, there's a reason for that. It's a constant struggle we all have. So I, am, I apologize if I sound a bit like a broken record but um, these next few weeks, but you're, you're getting a taste of what Isaiah was doing <laughs> for a long time. Mine is a few weeks. His was, I think historically speaking, about 30 or 40 years that he gave the same message again and again. And he had been told, by the way, before he started that the people weren't even going to listen. His continued ministry was going to continue to harden their hearts and they were going to rebel and reject, and that's what he saw. His mission was to keep trying, and he did. So my mission as well is to be faithful as well to that call. So like I said, we are, we, last week we looked at the first of the first five oracles, and this week we are going to finish this first series. And because of that, this week we are covering four oracles. And if that sounds like a lot, the next two weeks we're going to be covering five oracles each um, because the the reason I'm doing that is these each series actually has one kind of message, overall message that it gives, and I want to help us to try to capture that. Because the book of Isaiah, with with it being a very long book, it's really easy to get really lost in the weeds and lose what Isaiah is trying to do with the book. So I'm trying to help us to keep more of a helicopter view and see what's going on. And that's also really because a lot of the parts of Isaiah you really have to read them as a chunk to understand what he's doing. And um, well, something I also mentioned last week, each of these three series of oracles that we'll, we'll be working through, each oracle starts um, with a header 
And these are really clear at the beginning and then become less clear as you go. And that's because these three series of oracles are going to work forward kind of into the future. And just like in the book of Revelation, how everything like all of a sudden starts getting this real picturesque language and you're not really clear exactly sure what's going on. It's a little bit's happening that in the book of Isaiah too. It all starts to kind of blend a little bit together. Isaiah knows the end of the story. The details are pretty clear up front. But then as he goes, he's like, well, I know this is where we're going. And I'm not exactly sure how we're getting there, but I know it's going to happen. And that's the same type of trust that he's trying to instill into the people as well. As the content of each of these series moves towards the future, I think um, one thing that's going to be helpful to do and what I want to do right now before we jump into these final four oracles of this first series is I'm going to try to summarize the three series. So three series of five oracles. I'm going to try to summarize each of them and what Isaiah seems to be seeking to accomplish in how these chapters have been arranged. And I want to pause here and give a little bit of a side. I say how these chapters have been arranged, by the way, because like I said um, last week and again today, is that I think that 13 through 35 are really a sampling. This isn't like Isaiah didn't sit or stand in front of the people and say all of these messages at one time. I think this was a ministry that he had for decades. And these chapters have then been arranged and structured purposely to give a progressive and a building message to help us see what he was trying to communicate to the people in the time of Ahaz and then in the time of Hezekiah. These messages were arranged for this written form that delivers a message through the order of the oracles. In this first series, which is chapters 13, like we did last week, all the way through the end of chapter 20. And if you flip through, don't worry, some of these chapters are really short. Um, But this first series, 13 through 20, blends primarily the present and the near future. Um, I mentioned last week that this the oracle section from 13 to 27 contains a lot of far future stuff, and it does, especially as you keep going. And that's why 28 to 35 kind of takes a step back and says, well, let's look again at more near future stuff to encourage you that you can trust God with even all that far future stuff I just talked about. But 13 through 20, these first few chapters of this oracle section blends a lot of the present and the near future, but then also, as Isaiah always does, he even in the midst of these present and near future Um, oracles, he blends a lot of end time stuff to show that the Lord who keeps his word and his promises in the near future is also the same Lord who will keep his promises and his plan and his purposes for the end of time as well. You can trust him in all time. The second series, 21 to 23, looks sometime beyond the near future and is a bit more mysterious and ominous than the first series. If you look at the headings in chapters 21 to 23, it's not always clear who exactly it's talking about until you really dig into the content and try to figure it out. Like one of them is called the Valley of Vision. It's like, where's that? That's actually referring to God's people and the and the area of Israel. Um, so some of the headers are kind of, what exactly are we talking about? And then also you'll notice that the content of 21 to 23 becomes quite ominous. It's, it's There's a lot of doom and gloom. There's a lot of darkness. But as in Isaiah, we see that even in this darkness, there is a promised light of the dawn. So I would say that 21 to 23 feels a lot more like the prologue where you're like, okay, there's a lot of doom and gloom. There's a lot of darkness coming. And I think that kind of makes sense because if you think of Isaiah's time, he is talking to the people who are really on the road to exile. So in the near future, you have a lot of this, well, you're going to be delivered. Um, We know they're going to be delivered from Assyria and then Babylon's going to come. And Babylon is going to bring them into exile. And then they're going to be in exile for a while. And then if you... um, 
spoiler, if you look ahead at the end of the, New, the Old Testament, there's a long, in fact, a 400-year time, 400 time period where there's a emptiness. There's no prophetic word is given, and they're waiting. And I think Isaiah looks through God's eyes into the future and sees this. And he's like, you are approaching a time of a lot of darkness and a time of a lot of uncertainty. And that's what's being communicated through 21 to 23. And then the third and final series, which is chapters 24 through 27, looks to the end of time. And it can be summarized um, as a tale of two cities. And that is the city of the world in which everything is found to be meaningless and the city is destroyed. Um, I talked about this a lot last week, actually. It's kind of the proverbial Babylon. It's the city that is opposed to God. You have this city, and then you have the city of God in which there's righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation for all the people who got, of God who, surprisingly, will come from the entire world. And we'll see a piece of that even this week. We see that at the end of time, the city of God will be composed of people even from the most powerful empires who are most opposed to God. All people will be brought into unity under the banner of faith in God. Isaiah then is using the progression of these chapters in 13 to 27 to prove that God can be trusted to keep his word and his promises so that the people will know that they can trust God through the time of coming darkness. No darkness can put out the light of God's purposes. That was the point of 1 through 5 and is the point that's made again and again in Isaiah. In fact, this concept of darkness and light, we even, Kurt, you actually mentioned that in the passage I quote, I think that's from Colossians, right? Um, and there's also, that's in, prevalent heavily in the writings of John and first or third John and then the gospel of John, this concept of light and darkness. That's a theme that Isaiah uses as well. But no darkness can put out the light of God's purposes. The city of the world will not win. There are many times in world history that it looks like the city of the world is going to win. But we already have the end of the story. In fact, in Isaiah, we were given the end of the story. In fact, God gave the end of the story all the way back in Genesis 3. And he's continuing to remind us that we can trust him, that that is how the story will end. So the city of the world will not win. Assyria, Babylon, or any other world power is not more powerful than God. One day, the city of the world, which basically represents putting faith and trust in anything other than God, if we put our faith in the city of the world, this will be exposed as vain and meaningless. One day, God's promises and plans will be seen as the only thing worthy of our faith and trust. His city will be established. He will live with his people forever, and there will finally be perfect peace and righteousness. This is the message that Isaiah is seeking to give again and again to the people and today to us through his writings. So as we begin to see this message unfold, let's look to the final four oracles of this first series. And today we'll be covering chapter 14, verse 28, all the way through the end of chapter 20, verse 6. And that's obviously a lot of chapters, so as always... Just a plug, we are going to be doing a Q&A the week before Easter. I will not be covering everything in these sections. There's just way too many verses to do an in-depth dive. Um, if you have questions, if you have things I didn't cover, um, please let me know, and I will try to address things in the Q&A. Um, and you can also obviously just ask me personally. I'm not going to wait till the Q&A to answer all your questions. Um, so 
as we dive in here, starting in 1428, so this would again be the second oracle of the first series. The first one was against Babylon, and God's judgment and the certainty of the fate of Babylon was proven by this few verses at the end here of the first oracle that he will bring judgment against Assyria to prove that he will also bring judgment against Babylon. And now we enter into the second oracle, which is against Philistia. And this oracle is short, so I'm going to read it. Um, Starting in 1428, in the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying fiery serpent. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy will lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. What will one answer the messenger of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. This oracle is short, but it is honestly very confusing. Um, There are a lot of things mentioned in here that it's hard to, to follow exactly who is being talked about and what is the most helpful way to kind of try to wrap our minds around what is going on in this short oracle is we have to know a little bit of the history of what is going on at this time in order to understand who Isaiah is responding to and why he is talking the way he did. And this is actually why this timestamp is given here in 1428. It says, in the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. So this gives us a time, but it also is itself one of the sources of confusion, actually. Because if you read that, in the year the king Ahaz died, and then you skip forward, rejoice not, O Philistia, that the rod that struck you is broken. So is the rod that struck you Ahaz? That would be the natural reading, but it's actually not referring to Ahaz. Because the year that king Ahaz died is actually just giving us a time period. It doesn't necessarily mean that the rod that struck Philistia is Ahaz. Because Ahaz actually didn't strike Philistia at all. He was a vassal of the Assyrian Empire by choice, and we've talked about that over the last few weeks. Um, Some have said that it refers to the Davidic line, which did strike Philistia many times, but I think that what makes the most sense based on the history of what we know um, is that in the time that King Ahaz died, this was also a time that the Assyrian Empire was currently weakened. And the Assyrian Empire was definitely a rod that struck the the Philistines. This also makes sense of, if you skip to the end, verse 32, what will one answer to the messengers of the nation? This implies that messengers of the nation, which in context is Philistia, messengers of the nation have been sent to Judah. And in context, what's happening here is that Isaiah is basically giving a word from the Lord of advice to Hezekiah, in how he should be responding to the messengers from Philistia. And what is going on is that Philistia is coming to Judah at the time of Ahaz's death, which if you're kind of sort of in friendly relations with the nations around you, you basically send your condolences when the king of a nation died and also to basically meet with the king being transitioned into power Um, So there's that aspect of what's going on. But also, we know from history that around this time period, when King Ahaz died and Hezekiah was transitioning into power, Philistia would have also been sending messengers 
using this as an opportunity to try to gain the new king's alliance in their revolt against the Assyrian Empire. So just like Ahaz had to deal with um, requests and he had to deal with forceful requests to try to join an alliance against the Assyrian Empire, now Hezekiah is dealing with new rounds of alliance against the Assyrian Empire. In fact, this is going to be a theme that keeps coming up again and again in these few chapters. So all that to say, I think the context of what's going on is Ahaz has died or is dying, and then Hezekiah is coming into power. The neighboring country of Philistia is coming to Ahaz and requesting if he is going to join their alliance against the Assyrian Empire. This, like I said, explains the end of verse 32 there and why why there's an answer being given to the messengers. And it also explains the wording going on here. Because again, this rejoice out of Philistia, the rod has struck you is broken. Basically, what's being said is, in response to these messengers coming and say, hey, let's have this alliance against the Assyrian Empire, with the implication being, Assyria is currently weak. Let's take advantage of this. You're a new ruler. Come on, let's join forces and let's, let's revolt against the Assyrian Empire. In response to this, the Lord through Isaiah is saying, rejoice not Philistia that the rod or the Assyrian Empire that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root, and it's just interesting, I'm... I have Exodus on the brain all the time because I preached through it last winter, but it's interesting that the rod turns into a serpent. We've seen that imagery before. Um, But the rod that struck you, um, for from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. I think what's going on in the language here is that saying, yes, the rod is broken. The serpent seems to be down and out right now. But actually, its, um, its offspring will be an adder, and then become a flying, fiery serpent. Basically, it's progressively becoming a more dangerous and venomous snake. A little bit of curiosity here, by the way. The flying, flying, fiery serpent, the word right there, is actually the singular form of the word for seraphim back in chapter 6. So that's why I mentioned that there is some serpent imagery going on, throne guardian imagery going on there in chapter 6, um, which is also interesting because the fact that that word is used means that this is like, a message saying, okay, you think the Assyrian Empire is down and out, but they're going to become way more powerful than you're thinking. In fact, I'm going to compare them to this like throne guardian theological image. They're going to become very powerful. And it also matches later in the um, section here in verse 31. It says, Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north. The Assyrian Empire would come from the north to conquer Philistia. There is, and there's no straggler in his ranks, a way of saying that there is no weakness in this Assyrian empire when he is coming to conquer you, which matches that flying, flying fiery serpent. There's no weakness. It's like this supernatural, powerful empire is going to come and conquer you. So effectively what Isaiah is responding to these messengers is saying, yeah, you're rejoicing that the Assyrian empire is currently weak, but my God knows that that is only a temporary lull in their power, and your revolt is going to fail miserably. The Assyrian Empire is going to come out of the north. You're going to see its smoke coming, and it's going to destroy you. So wail. Um, and he then finishes his response to the messengers and says, What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. So effectively, the end and the summary of Isaiah's message to the messengers then is, no, we're not going to have an alliance with you. That's going to fail. We are not going to trust you. We are going to trust God. Now, 
as far as historically, whether or not Hezekiah listened to this message, I honestly couldn't really find a clear answer to that because all the history is kind of muddled at this time period. But what is happening is that Isaiah is giving this message to Hezekiah. We know Hezekiah was a good king um, for at least most of his reign. We also know that um, the kingdom of Judah does not seem to have been punished by the Assyrian Empire for the revolt that is known from around this time. It seems, seems that Philistia, Egypt, we'll get there by the way, that's the last couple of oracles, um, seems that Philistia, Egypt, and then Moab kind of joined a revolt and they were all punished, but Judah was not. So it seems that Hezekiah actually listened this time to Isaiah, which is good. Um, and all that to say, in this section, Isaiah is strongly advising Hezekiah to not join the revolt. Philistia, he knows, is marked for destruction, and he is pleading Hezekiah to answer the messengers from Philistia by saying that we, Judah, will trust the Lord, not in alliance with the neighbors. Isaiah is pleading with Hezekiah to give the answer that Ahaz should also have given, that he will trust in the Lord, not in any power around him. Circumstances are a little different, but the, the, the core of the message is the same. So that's what's going on in the first oracle. And then in the, or sorry, the second oracle, I guess, in the series of five. Um, and then the third oracle covers chapter 15, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 16. So two enti- entire chapters are this third oracle in the first series, all about Moab. And we read chapter 16. And I want to actually first start off just a note about the arrangement of chapter 15 and 16. This should come as no surprise, but the arrangement of chapters 15 and 16 is a, probably guessed it, chiasm. 15 and 16 are arranged in that like the outside mirrors each other, and then there's something in the middle that is actually the most important. It also helps to explain why chapter 16 verse 6 seems like such a sudden transition from chapter 5. Because 16, 1 through 5 is like this plea of the refugees and then this promise of the Messiah. So it's like you sh- we should be helping Moab. And then all of a sudden in 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud is he? And then like all of a sudden back to like the condemnation of Moab. And the reason for that is that as far as how it's arranged, chapter 15, the whole, th- the whole thing is a lament over Moab that ends with a warning in verse 9. And then in 16, 1 through 5, you have this plea of the refugees, which I'll get to in a little bit about explaining what exactly is going on there. And then in 6 through the end of the rest of the chapter of 16, you have, just like at the beginning, you have another lament over Moab that ends with a warning. And in typical Hebrew poetry fashion, the first and the, the the beginning and the end that mirror each other, they build on each other. So that's why at the very end, you have the warning is much more clear, much more explicit, and actually even has a timestamp of these things will happen in three years. Um, none of that clarity was given in chapter 15. So that's a word about the arrangement of this third oracle here. And then you'll also notice one thing that is very different about this oracle, something that you didn't see in the oracle against Babylon, the oracle against Assyria, um, the oracle against Philistia, there is a new theme that is here, and this one is weeping and sympathy and mourning over the fate 
of Moab. And we see in these verses that there is a theme of crying and weeping and internal turmoil, even as judgment is being given. Moab was Judah's neighbor to the east, right across the Jordan River. The Moabites came from the line of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. So they are distant family. They are referred to as the enemy of God's people many times in the Old Testament, but they were also a people who sheltered David's parents when he was fleeing from Saul. And this is probably because David's great-grandmother was Ruth, who was a Moabite. So there's a little bit of a complicated history with these people. Both Moab and Israel also claimed the land of Ammon, which was um, just north of Moab. And this became a source of great hostility. They also had many other land disputes throughout the years. They had battles over these lands. They changed um, who possessed it at one time or another. And it seems at this point in history that Judah considered that some of the territory that Moab currently occupied, they, Judah claimed that it was a false occupation. And the reason for that is that some of the area that Moab is in, and actually if you read chapter 16 and follow along in those places where the destruction is being grieved, some of those places are places that were included in God's promise of the land of his people. So there's a lot of land disputes going on between these people. But at the end of the day, they are still family. Distant, but family. And I think that is why you have this tone of grief here. It is grief for those who are, even distantly, but part of the people of God, who ought to have, through their history, ought to have been exposed to God's promises and plan and ought to to have put their faith in him. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there in a little bit, but I think that's also why you have this pocket in the middle here of this cry of the refugees, and there's something interesting going on there. Here in chapter 15 through 16, then, we have a lament over the fall of Moab, or I'm sorry, Moab, which is a lament over the fall of those who are related to God's people. In chapter 15, we read of a sudden disaster that will reduce the nation to refugees. And of this disaster, we read in 15 verse 5, my heart cries out for Moab. And then in 16, 9 through 11, we read, therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibna. I drench you with my tears. And then in 10, my, the joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in 11, therefore my inner parts moan like a liar for Moab. You have this intense grief that is happening. Throughout this chapter, there are many places that are being named. And what is going on is that the, the places begin and start with the fall of the, the, the power source, which is actually the south of Moab. And it kind of works in sequence and says all of these places have been destroyed. But then it actually kind of backs up and reverses, and it gives the flight of the refugees. And that starts from the north and goes south, which again, with an Assyrian invasion, would make sense because the north would fall first and then it would continue falling. And effectively what you have is you have this like back and forth going, is that I think the message trying to be communicated is you have this destruction that's coming from the north and these the southern cities are grieving over the, the destruction and, and the refugees are fleeing. And then as you follow the places and the names, then you get into 16.1, send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah, which is actually a place in Edom. Edom was below Moab. 
and you have these refugees fleeing and fleeing further and further and further and finally actually having to clear out Moab because the destruction is so complete. That what you have left is just as we read in um, the end of chapter 16 um, that the, the remnant will be feeble and few. You have these poor stragglers that are left outside of their own land. It seems that they're, they're in Edom and this is where the refugees end up after all this destruction. And then in 16, 1 through 5, we, we read what seems to be a cry and a request for refuge from these people. And this is sent to Judah. This is the meaning of this language. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. And the, the lamb, by the way, there, Moab was a grasslands area. It was a shepherding people. So like when they gave tribute, when they gave homage, when they sought alliances, they, they tended to send lambs because that was their resource that they had available to offer. So they're sending basically tribute, sending, sending a gift to the ruler of the land from Selah or from Edom by the way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. So basically they're sending a tribute, this request to Zion, to Judah, to Jerusalem. And in verses 1 through 5, you have this, this request, this plea of the refugees, but it's actually, especially looking at the, the language and all the different um, variants of what, how actually the wording is believed to be the original wording, it's, it's hard to tell if this is an actual request from the refugees of Moab or if this is words being put into the mouth of Moab or if this is God through Isaiah wishing the people of Moab would say this. So it's hard to tell exactly who who is the speaker, who is the messenger, and what's the context and the timing. But being that this is an oracle of something in the future, I think a natural reading would be that this is hypothetical words and requests of the distraught Moab who have had their land destroyed and are seeking refuge in Judah. And then you have these few refugees who are turning to Jerusalem for help. So in that case, how it would read would be, send this message to Mount Zion, and then starting in two, I think, would be the message. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon, shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to them from the destroyer. In this language, you actually have a lot of language that is basically matching instances of Israel and Judah's own history and also how God has acted for them. So you have basically this plea to give us the refuge that God has at time given to you. And then I think based on that reading, um, the, the request would probably stop at the middle of four, be a shelter to them from the destroyer, and then I think in four, the second half of four through five would be kind of this implied positive response and also the, a reminder to the people of Judah of why they should respond positively, which would be when the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. I think in... With this reading, those that last part there would be an implied positive response, a reception of the refugees, and also a promise and a hope that one day this type of thing, this persecution, this suffering, these refugees who are fleeing destruction, one, type, one, one day this type of situation will be no more when there is a perfect king who has brought peace and justice. So I think that's one way to read 
um, what's going on here. You can also read 1 through 5, though, as the Lord, through Isaiah, pleading with Moab and putting words in their lips and telling them that this is this is what you ought to be saying. This is where you ought to be turning. This coming destruction has come, as we'll see in the next few verses, from your pride. You need to put away your pride and turn to Mount Zion. Turn to God's people. Turn to God. And then at the end there, turn to the hope of the Messiah. So I think you could read it a couple different ways in these verses. Either way, in classic Isaiah fashion, like I said, he closes out um, the rest of the chapter here with this echoing of the lament. And in, um, sorry, and and starting in verse 6, and then that goes through the rest of the chapter. And and in this section here, in this close of the, the lament, like I just mentioned, we see the reason for the destruction of Moab, which is their pride, which is ironic because that's basically the same reason that he's used for the destruction, for all the destruction that he's caused to the different people so far through the book of Isaiah, whether his own people or the empires of the world, and now also to Moab. We see then that this call to find hope in the Messiah, whether that's God and Isaiah pleading with Moab to do this, or whether that's the refugees looking to Jerusalem, the few who are left are looking there and the people in Jerusalem are encouraged to give them hope as a picture of the future hope of the Messiah. Um, either way you read that, you have this call to hope surrounded by lament that ends with warning in 15 and in 16. And then in 13, and, and sorry, chapter 16, verses 13 through 14. We read that this destruction will happen in just three years. We read, this is the word of the Lord concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be few and feeble. Moab is going to be judged for their pride. And if you look another mirror, just like Isaiah, if you look in 15, Verse 2 says, He, referring to Moab, has gone up to the temple to Dibon, to the high places to weep. So Moab, in response to the destruction, is going to his gods, to the high places, and weeping and requesting help. And then you skip forward to uh, chapter 16, verse 12. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. That wording there reminds me of Elijah on the mount with the prophets of Baal. Moab, in their pride, is seeing destruction and still turning to their idols and not to God. They are wearying themselves, requesting and begging their gods to help them, and their gods are doing nothing because they have not turned to their only hope, which is in God and the promises that he has made. So I think whatever way you read the wording of 1-5 and who's saying what, I think what is the plea here and why this is a lament is that this is relatives of God's people, people who ought to know better, being begged, put away your pride. Look to Zion, look to God, and look to his promises, not to your false gods and not to yourself. So that is the third oracle here, and that was the oracle against Moab. And then in 17, um, and this, the fourth oracle is in 17.1 through 18.7, so chapter 17 and 18, you have the fourth oracle, which 
is introduced as an oracle concerning Damascus. Damascus is the capital city of Syria, or was the capital city of Syria, but Syria had actually been destroyed by this time, um, which is, again, just one of the many reasons that I think this is a sampling and kind of a compiling of Isaiah's messages. I'm going I'm to explain more in a minute, but I think what's going on is that this first half here is actually an oracle he had given earlier concerning Syria and Israel, and he uses it to lead into what he's going to be saying in the second half of the oracle. Um, but this fourth oracle opens up by saying that it concerns Damascus or Syria, but we actually quickly find out that Damascus is actually really just the bridge to talk about Israel or the northern tribes. And then that even that, talking about Israel is actually a bridge to talk about, talk about a deeper truth and a more universal truth. This first oracle, like I, like I just said, was probably spoken by Isaiah much before the other ones in this section. Isaiah had already been destroyed well before the death of Ahaz, or sorry, Damascus, um, Syria, had already been destroyed well before the death of Ahaz, which we read about um, back in 1428. That, like, it kinda, that's, again, this time stamp of this time of Ahaz dying. And I think this first half here, this oracle against Syria and Israel, is included as the lead-in to what he's trying to say. 17, 1 through 3, as, as we talk about this event, um, this fall of Syria and Israel, you'll notice that as you, as you follow the places that are mentioned, it's like the spotlight kind of swivels back and forth between Syria and Israel. And why it does that is that Israel had looked to Syria for an alliance against Assyria. And that had been the cause of their destruction. And they fell together. At the time of Syria's fall, it was conquered and the people were deported. And then also Israel was devastated as well as that time. It didn't finally fall until about 10 years later was the final deportation of the, the northern tribes. I mean, the destruction of its capital city. Um, but their fates are woven together. And basically what's being said through the wording of that is, Israel, you have chosen your fate. You sought trust, you sought hope, you sought alliance in something other than God. You looked to Syria rather than to God, rather than to God and you will fall with them. And then 17 verses 4 through 11 shift this focus, and the spotlight then entirely focuses on Israel rather than Syria. And what these verses say, in essence, is that Israel will be brought low. The idols they turn to, the alliances they turn to will be seen as worthless, and they will come to terms with God in the midst of their destruction. We read in verse 10, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and you sow the vine branch of a stranger, that's, by the way, a poetic way of referring to the alliance, the vine branch of a stranger. Basically, they're relying on the plants and the fruits of other people, which would, in their context, be Syria. Though you make them grow on, on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow. Basically, though you're doing all this work and you think that this is going to work out how you want it to work out, yet, at the end of verse 11, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. This isn't going to work out how you think it's going to work out, is the message that's being said. And then in 17, 12 through 14, this transitions back to the fate of Israel and Syria in a brief statement about God's power over all nations. Because again, I think what he's doing, he's kind of rewinding and re-giving this oracle about Syria and Israel as a lead-in to what he's saying about all nations and all of time, which sounds just like something Isaiah tends to do a lot. So in 17, verse 12 through 14, it says, Ah, the thunder of many nations. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. 
Ah, the roar of the nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of mighty waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away. Does that sound like a scene from the Gospels about Jesus rebuking the waters? There's some cool imagery that's caught between the Testaments here. But the nations roar, the roaring mighty waters, he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chafed like chaff on the mountains before the wind, and the whirling dust before the storm. At the evening time, behold terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. What these verses are saying is that the nations thunder and roar, but God simply rebukes them. He gives but a word and they flee away and are conquered. That also sounds like Revelation. God simply rebukes the nations. He is in ultimate control. There is no nation that can roar or thunder and become more powerful than God. All people will ultimately face his judgment What Isaiah is saying through the story of Israel and Syria and then broadening it out to show the power of God and talk about God's power is that he's trying to say Judah doesn't need to look to foreign powers and alliances. They need to look to God. Because all these places they think they can turn to for security and for trust and for power and to make the things, make their plans go how they think they're going to go. All of these nations are people, no matter how powerful they are, that God can simply say a word and they are brought to nothing. You ought to be looking to that God, to your God, not to any other nation. He makes this point again in chapter 18 with a new proposition of alliance that is brought to Judah. Because again, as we jump into 18, there's some more history that needs to be known here. And I think this history has to do with, again, that timestamp back at the beginning in chapter 14, 28, about the time of Ahaz's death, the alliance that Philistia had offered them. We read in 18.1, a land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush. This is a reference to um, the land of Cush or the land of Ethiopia, which is south of Egypt. And actually, at this time, there was a new dynasty that had just overthrown the previous Egyptian dynasty, and that was a Cushite or a Ethiopian dynasty had now risen into power. So this is actually a reference to the land or the empire, the, the, the power of Egypt. This is a reference to there. And around this time, this dynasty that had just taken over was immediately seeking to form an anti-Assyrian alliance. So I mentioned that Philistia was seeking to take advantage of this weakened time of the Assyrian Empire. Well, this new power that had just risen up in Egypt also knew that the Assyrian Empire was currently weakened, and they were actually kind of being the instigator of all these alliances. And that's actually probably why Philistia was going to Judah, was they were probably, they had already talked to Egypt and were already in league with them, and then they're trying to get Judah to join into their alliance as well. And instead of simply telling these messengers no, what Isaiah, the, the words Isaiah says that he would give to them is that he would actually turn them around and give them his own message, which is what we see in the rest of chapter 18 here. It says, starting in verse 2, um, actually I'm going to start back in one so it makes sense. Ah, land of warring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea and vessels of papyrus in the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and near, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. 
all you inhabitants of the world who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look, when a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling, like a clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over, and the flower becomes ripening grapes, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks, and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. He he shall all, or sorry, they shall all of them be left to the birds of prey in the mountains and to the beasts of the earth, and the birds of prey will summer on them, and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts, from a people tall and smooth, and from a people feared far and near, a, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land d- the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. So what Isaiah says he would tell to them is that he would turn them right back around and have them tell all the inhabitants of the world, including through, through the wording here of this nation tall and smooth and people feared far and wide and nation mighty and conquering, basically turn around and go tell everybody on the earth, including even all the most powerful empires you can think of and the people that you're afraid of, go tell them all that they need to look not for their own timing and their own plans, but for God and his timing and his plans. God looks on, we read in 4 through 6, God looks on from his dwelling and he will act in judgment in his timing. There's a lot of planning and scheming, conspiracy going on here about like, well, we are going to make our own alliance and make our own timing and we're going to take down this Assyrian empire. And God says, I'm looking down from my throne and I will act in my timing. Your timing is not going to work. This timing, by the way, this could possibly refer to the judgment that God will bring against Assyria. And I think you actually see some wording in that here, that this sudden judgment that comes, this massive amount of people who are left to the birds and to the beasts, we actually will see that fulfilled in a way um, later in chapter 37. But I think that is even just, even that's just a picture of a future fulfillment. And I think especially in light of verse 7 here about the people coming to God to bring tribute and also the fact that some of the wording in this chapter is very similar to wording from the book of Revelation. I think in light of both of these things, I think this is referring probably to the victories and the deliverances that he gives throughout history, but ultimately to his final victory and to the judgment that he will one day bring on the whole world when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord when all nations, no matter how powerful, will acknowledge that he is the Lord of hosts. This thought, by the way, of God's judgment of the nations and how every nation, no matter how powerful, will one day bow the knee to him, this perfectly transitions us into the final oracle, which is against Egypt. And the the use here of this Cushite message, this alliance that's trying to be formed, the fact that they had just overtaken Egypt also transitions us into this thought of Egypt. I think rather than referring to, um, in chapter 19, rather than referring to this new power as Cushite or Ethiopian, I think he purposely uses this Egyptian language, just like we, we talked about how the Babylonian language is kind of a loaded imagery in biblical theology, so is Egyptian language as well. Egypt is also symbolic of the oppressors of God, of God's people, and um, another seat of rejection of God. It's also historically been a place that God's people tend to look to in trouble at times even when they're told not to. 
So I think there's some theology that's going on here when he uses this, um, in this last one here, an oracle against Egypt. Egypt, um, as I just mentioned with the, the new Cushite dynasty here, Egypt was actively trying to get Hezekiah to join their alliance against Assyria. And we know from chapters 30 to 31, and also from chapters 36 to 37, that trusting Egypt was a continual thing that Hezekiah was tempted with and considering. He's rebuked multiple times by Isaiah for this and warned against it. In response to this temptation, Isaiah is saying through chapter 19 in this oracle that God will judge Egypt. If you take it kind of in sections here, in verses 1 through 4, we see that God will bring judgment on Egypt. There will be infighting. They will fight against themselves. And then in this fighting, they will look to their gods for help and answers, and their gods will give them nothing. Their gods will be exposed to be helpless. And then in verses 5 through 10, we see that the resources of Egypt, especially the Nile, which was known as the lifeblood of Egypt because it supplied so much of the agriculture and the economy, that all of these resources will dry up and wither and also be seen as useless. Their leaders will be useless. There will be infighting. Their gods will be useless. Their resources will be useless. And then we also see in 11 through 15 that her princes and her counselors and her wise men will be seen as foolish and confused and helpless. So effectively what's happening here is in this temptation of Hezekiah to look to Egypt for help, Isaiah goes through every aspect of every reason why you might look to Egypt for help and saying all of that is useless and meaningless and will not help you. In fact, all, all of that is something that God is bringing judgment on. And then we have, starting in verse 16 through verses 25 of chapter 19, we have five in-that-day statements. And these, these work together to say that Egypt will one day fear the Lord and swear allegiance to him. Even Egypt will turn to the Lord and worship him. And then God will hear and will heal them. Even Egypt one day will turn to God. One day, in fact, not just Egypt, but also Assyria will worship the Lord. And Egypt, Israel, and Assyria will be connected and worship God together. We see this building in that day statement, and I just want to read some of it to, sh- to show kind of the beauty of what's being pictured. Starting in 19, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land and a pillar to the Lord at its border, a way of, a way of saying totality. In the midst and at the borders, there's going to be altars to God and pillars to God everywhere. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and deliver them. Oh, that's interesting, a turn of fates. The Egyptians crying to the Lord because of their oppressors and he sends a savior. That sounds a lot like the book of Exodus. What it's saying is that the Exodus story will be relived even in people of Egypt. That God will deliver even people who God's people thought were their enemies. And the Lord, in 21, and the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. 
what is being said in these verses, in this language put in terms of the contemporary day's issues and powers, what's being said is that Babel is going to be reversed. And all people, through the lens of Egypt and Assyria, who represent the far ends of the earth, you have Egypt and Assyria, and then Israel in between, basically everywhere on earth, all people will one day be brought together. There will be a road connecting them. You see even language here um, in 18th, in the verse 18 about the language being the same. All people are going to be reunited and will worship God together. And then just like the prophecy against Babylon in the first oracle is supported by a more near-term prophecy against Assyria, and we saw this in chapter 13 and 14, we, so we see also that this end-of-time prophecy, this promise that all people one day will worship God together, even former enemies of God will be worshiping God. We see that this is supported by another more near-term prophecy against Egypt in chapter 20. And then 20 starts with the time step, in the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. So that's the timestamp of what's going on here. Sargon is the king of Assyria, and this time period, what's happening is he's sending his army to Ashdod, which was Philistia. And Ashdod is actually like the northernmost powerful city in Philistia. And this city, Ashdod of Philistia, had become kind of the flag city in the area of this rebellion of Egypt or the Cushite dynasty, of Philistia, of Edom, of Moab. Basically, everybody except for, fortunately, Hezekiah. Um, all this coalition had come and joined forces against the Assyrian Empire. So Sargon, we read, sent his commander-in-chief, and there's a few different ways to take, it, take that. Basically, he sent a very important person to put down this rebellion very quickly. And um, the leader of this rebellion, we know from history, um, this leader of the rebellion who was put in Ashdod, who was trying to fight against the Assyrian Empire, he was forced to flee to Egypt. And Egypt backed down of the, on their promise to protect him and simply handed him back over to the Assyrian Empire, which is just one of the many things and one of the many reasons why Isaiah has continually been warning about trusting in foreign powers and empires. And what's going on in, in this section here then is that the Lord is having Isaiah act out a prophecy and a warning to Hezekiah and to the people, and actually by extension, we kind of see some of the wording here, a warning to all the other surrounding nations to not trust Egypt, to not form an alliance against the Assyrian Empire, but to trust rather God's timing and planning. We read in uh, verse 2, At that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. So he did, walking about naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked about naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles. So God has Isaiah basically walk around in the dress of a captive being led to exile to make a promise that what they just saw play out Ashdod conquered, the leader of the rebellion flees to Egypt, and then he is actually handed over back to Assyria, and certainly in this manner is led back to Egypt as an exile, he along with some other people at the time. But what Isaiah, or the Lord through Isaiah, what he's promising is that just as this happened, there is going to come a day actually where the Egyptian power itself that you are relying on as being an instigator of these alliances 
that power itself is, is going to be exiled to the Assyrian Empire. And we actually know um, from history that this did happen. The, the, this prophecy was fulfilled in part 10 years later, and then also, again, more fully 30 years later after that. So 10 and then 30, 40 years. So within the time of a generation, you see that the people who were given the message of Isaiah see this fulfilled and see God's promises that you should not be putting your trust in this, in this nation for it will fall. So in messages very similar to what Isaiah had told Ahaz about Assyria, he then tells his son Hezekiah that Egypt is not to be trusted. Because just like father, like son, they're each looking to this foreign empire to be the solution to their problems. Isaiah is telling him that their wisdom and might is fleeting and worthless. They will turn on you and they will fall. So in the five oracles of this series, we have seen one consistent message. Put your trust in God, not in yourself, and not in other nations. In the first oracle that we looked at last week, God told the people to not fear Babylon. For though they would take them into exile, God would preserve his people and judge Babylon. This first oracle would have also been a warning for Hezekiah to not form an alliance with Babylon, which is something we see him, do, see him doing later in the book of Isaiah. In the second oracle, Isaiah warns Hezekiah to not join the alliance with Philistia, Egypt, and others against Assyria, but rather trust in the Lord. And then in the third oracle, Moab, another member of that alliance, is promised judgment for her pride and told to turn to the Lord. In the fourth oracle, Israel, the northern tribes, is judged for forsaking God and forming an alliance with Assyria, or sorry, with Syria. And then they fall together. This judgment is then broadened out in the second half of this oracle to say that God is more powerful than any nation. He will judge the enemies of God and his people in his timing. And one day, even the most powerful nations will worship him. In other words, God is the true king, and you should trust him, not anybody else. The head conspirator of this alliance that we kept talking about is then addressed in the final and fifth oracle, this being Egypt. God promises judgment on Egypt itself and declares that the wisdom and revelation of their gods and their wise men will be seen as foolishness. In fact, an alliance with Egypt is foolish because one day God will judge them and they will learn to fear and worship God. So why are you putting your alliance in the people who will one day turn and do the thing that you should be doing right now, which is worship me and trust me? One day God will bring unity and peace to Egypt, Assyria, and all of Israel. The whole earth, in fact, will worship God together. The certainty of all these promises, both near and distant, is shown in the very near promises of judgment against Assyria in 14, 24 to 27, and then judgment in just three years against Moab in 16, 13 to 14, then also against Egypt in the promise that's fulfilled in part in 10 years and then more fully in 30 years in Egypt that we see in chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. So he uses all these more near-term prophecies to say that you can trust me. The consistent message we see through the five oracles of this series is that faith is believing that God's promises will come true and acknowledging that his plan and his timing is best. Alliances with Philistia and Egypt would have looked really appealing on paper. But God, through Isaiah, repeatedly told Hezekiah not to trust his own wisdom and his own timing and the timing that these other people were pushing on him, but to trust God. As we wait for God's plan and timing in our own lives, a measure of our faith 
is to ask ourselves whether or not we are willing to wait well. Because that was the question constantly being brought to Ahaz and then Hezekiah and to all the people. Are you willing to wait? And are you willing to wait well and faithfully and in trust? Do we wait in faith? Are we willing to do things we know are not right or wise in God's eyes to get what we want or feel that we need? This is not waiting well. If we feel the Holy Spirit prompting us away from certain things or from a certain choice, do we ignore him because we feel that we know better? The kings of Judah often refused to listen to Isaiah's counsel, choosing their own wisdom or the words of other false prophets that we read in Isaiah and many other places. There were constantly false prophets giving the kings what they wanted to hear. And oftentimes, the kings unfortunately chose to listen to this word that was supposedly from the Lord, which is really just the word from the king because he's just listening to those who he wants to hear. But the kings were constantly refusing the word of the Lord through Isaiah and the other prophets and choosing their own wisdom and the words that they wanted to hear. As we wait, are we willing to submit to wise counsel? Or do we simply look out for a person that will tell us what we want to hear? Or do we ignore everybody else when they're telling us we don't want what we don't want to hear and we choose to listen to our own wisdom that we think is greater? The Bible has a lot to say about patience and waiting for the Lord because God knows that it is hard. Waiting is difficult and waiting well is even more difficult. We want to have answers. We want to feel that we have a sense of control in our lives or at least that we see the path ahead clearly. But we don't always have this. Sometimes, as many in Isaiah's day and even Isaiah himself, sometimes we may only see partial answers and fulfillments in our life. The Moab prophecy was three years, but what about the person who died the next year after Isaiah gave that? He never saw that fulfillment. Many in Isaiah's day didn't see many of the things that Isaiah was talking about. As we wait... Are we willing to take God at his word and live faithfully in this moment, wherever we are, and trust that his plans are better than ours and his timing is better than ours? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the fact that you are God, you are the king of all, and that we are not. I pray that as we seek to do this task of waiting well that is incredibly difficult. That you, as you promised, would give us your spirit and that he would be our comfort and our encouragement and our rebuke when needed. That he would help us to wait well. That we would not make the mistake of the kings of Judah and of all your people so often, unfortunately, through history that have chosen to refuse your timing in your way but that we would trust that you, your way, and your plan is better than ours. I pray this in your name. Amen.